Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I believe very much the Emergency Act was a measure of last resort, and that it was incumbent upon us to, first of all, either exhaust all existing authorities or acknowledge that they would not be successful and could not be used for a number of different reasons. And we were hearing that type of feedback from law enforcement about the enormous challenges they were facing. Yeah, but you didn't hear from law enforcement that you should enact or invoke the Emergencies Act. You didn't hear that, Mr. Blair. You should know that, your former chief of police of Toronto. And it doesn't matter what you believe or anybody believes. It's the writing, it's the words in the act that matter. And that was carefully crafted. And I spoke about that with my next guest just a few days ago. And my next guest is Perrin Beattie. And uh, Mr. Beattie, as you know, as we've been saying, is president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And he's the former Minister of National Defense in the government of Brian Mulroney. Now, you know the Emergencies Act became law in this country in 1988, and it replaced the War Measures Act, which was very, very heavy-handed. Anyway, uh, I asked Perrin Beattie about the language in the Emergencies Act. You're going to hear this, and you'll hear Mr. Beattie talk about the Emergencies Act. Now, he's the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. So I, I, I couldn't expect him to get too deeply into the um, when the Emergencies Act should be used. And I certainly didn't expect him to get into a situation where he's going to be confrontational with the federal government over the Emergencies Act. That's not his role. He's the president and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce. But he did talk to us about the act, why it was necessary, and why he introduced the Emergencies Act to Canadians, and it became law in 1988. Now... I did begin by asking the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce about our national economy and about whether we are doing everything, and by we I mean the federal government. And, you know, when we talk about federal government, we're going to lump them all in because they all have responsibility on this. Whether the federal government, the, the liberals are the leaders, they are the government, they have the final say with their friends in the NDP. But is the federal government taking advantage of the tremendous opportunities that exist to positively direct the Canadian economy, and particularly where energy is concerned? Here's my conversation with Perrin Beattie. Mr. Beattie, the chamber had a specific request for the federal government, and particularly the Minister of Finance, to use the fall economic statement to set out a clear strategy for economic growth in light of international expectations for worldwide economic slowdown including in uh, Canada. You didn't hear that strategy laid out in the minister's economic statement, I understand. And the chamber's wish was for a strategy encouraging investment in Canada, addressing the interprovincial trade barriers. And you were hoping there'd be a solid plan to export food, fuel, and fertilizer to global markets. Would you speak to that, please? Did the federal government miss out on opportunity? I believe they did. And I think it's going to be very important that when the budget comes down or before the budget, that they set out a clear plan for where they want the country to go. Every study that's been done suggests that in terms of growth in Canada, we're going to be seeing levels of growth over the next 40 years that are way below those of the previous 40 years. And the minister in her budget last spring pointed out that in terms of productivity in Canada, we're falling behind our, our competitors. We have to up our game. To do that, we have to have a clear strategy. 
and the strategy has to be well communicated and all of us have to play our part. One aspect of, uh, of trade, I always talk about this, is domestic. And it's challenging, extremely challenging, to trade among the provinces, maybe more so at times. Interprovincial trade is more challenging than international trade. We've been sitting on, on this for so long and it hasn't been resolved. Must be frustrating for the chamber. It's enormous, enormously frustrating. I was part of the government that brought in the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. Back, we're talking about back in 1988. If anybody had told me then that we would have free trade with the United States or within North America or with, with other countries, but we wouldn't have it within Canada, I simply wouldn't have believed it. Uh, it's time for us finally to to achieve the dream of the fathers of confederation and to have one market what we have today is several different you know 13 different satrapies in canada all with their own rules all putting barriers in place to other canadians and other parts of the country consumers lose governments lose businesses lose it's lose 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 and this is something it wouldn't cost a penny for government to fix but would generate economic growth in this country and improve the prosperity for every Canadian. And improve national unity, perhaps. And improve national unity. Uh, we need to take down those barriers. Uh, we're one of the most decentralized uh, countries anywhere in the world, and we have artificial barriers in place that that prevent us from acting the way that that, that modern countries do. The government's almost complete focus appears to be climate change and its net zero objective. The Montreal Economic Institute shared with me uh, the results of a report. Two weeks ago, I spoke with them. And they uh, indicate their research shows this policy, the net zero policy, would cost between 44 and $79 billion a year to the Canadian economy. Sorry, was there a question there? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um, it's it's that we have to recognize that there is a cost in making this transition. There's an enormous cost as well if we don't make it. But what we need is a government with a clear plan. They need to treat business not as the problem, but as a partner. And we need to be able to, to ensure that as we make the transition, that we're doing it in lockstep with other countries as well, particularly the United States. We don't benefit anybody and we don't benefit the global environment if we simply shift jobs out of Canada to another country. What we need to do is to have a coherent strategy, one which uh, which makes sense and which doesn't put Canada at a disadvantage. And so we're not an attractive investment opportunity to uh, many in the global marketplace now then. I think that's a real concern. What we've what we've seen is difficulties over the last several years in terms of attracting investment. But if, if you look at the potential of Canada and where we are today, you mentioned earlier the food, fuel, and fertilizer, the three Fs that the world desperately needs at this point. Um, when Chancellor Schultz was here in September in Ottawa, uh, he quoted Prime Minister Trudeau as saying, Canada has everything that Russia has but we're a democracy. Well, we need to understand that ourselves. We have both an opportunity and an obligation to serve the rest of the world and to bring our products to, to the world to give the democracies, for example, an alternative to, to subsidizing Putin's war in Ukraine. Uh, we can fill some of that gap that there is in terms of, of food security in the world. Uh, 
And we can play an important role in terms of providing fertilizers and other critical minerals to the rest of the world. But we need to have a policy that makes it clear that that's our intention. We need to have the infrastructure in place to be able to deliver to markets, and we need to have the political will to make that happen. Mr. Beatty, I'm going to ask you some questions about the Emergencies Act, and I do understand there's a limitation as to what you can say to me in your current role with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, but you were the Minister of Defence and the government of Brian Mulroney, and in 1988, your federal government replaced the War Measures Act with the current Emergencies Act. Remind us, please, why that was necessary. It, if I was very much a product of, of my times, and I remember the um, October crisis of 1970, uh, when every Canadian had our civil liberties taken away from us as a result of the kidnapping of uh, Pierre Laporte and of, uh, and of James Cross, who was the uh, British Trade Commissioner in Montreal. As it turned out in the end, uh, it wasn't necessary to have imposed the War Measures Act. The people who were arrested, many of them arrested in the dark of the night with the most basic rights to see a lawyer, to have a charge preferred against them, and so on. Uh, all of those civil liberties were taken away. And yet at the end of the day, the perpetrators of these crimes were found through ordinary police methods, and nobody was ultimately convicted of an offense under the War Measures Act. As a result, then, with this having been the, the the single gravest suspension of civil liberties in, in our lifetimes, uh, what I wanted to do was to bring in legislation that would recognize that there will be instances where, where we'll have emergencies. It could be an earthquake in the lower mainland of British Columbia, or, or it could be a civil insurrection of some sort, or it could be war. There, there will be instances in the future where governments need to have emergency powers. But the quid pro quo is, if the government is going to take extraordinary powers to itself, it has there has to be extraordinary oversight and extraordinary accountability for it as well. And we have to constrain the ability of government to do that uh, so that it is focused on what is truly necessary, as opposed to simply taking away the rights of, of every Canadian. And what the Emergencies Act did was to give modern legislation that you could apply in one part of the country if there was a, an emergency that was more limited, that brought parliament into the picture and ensured parliamentary oversight, that ensured that the Bill of Rights uh, applied and the US covenant, the UN Covenant on Human Rights. Uh, it meant that there would be court review. It meant that there would also be a full review after it was over to see whether it was justified and what could be done to prevent the need for it in the future. Uh, the goal was to, to build in layers of protections for Canadians that would recognize the fact that, that there's nothing more fundamental uh, in a country than the protection of civil liberties. And when government needs to have extraordinary powers, there needs to be extraordinary accountability. Do you believe that invoking the Emergencies Act this year was unequivocally necessary and that there were no other existing policing options or federal statutes which would have served to defuse what Canada was facing on February 14th? That's that's the fundamental question that's in front of the commissioner today. Uh, the act is very clear that it is a measure of last resort. It is explicit in saying it can be used only if there are no other measures that would enable government to deal with the emergencies. And this is federal, provincial, or municipal uh, legislation on the books. And uh, what we've heard before the commissioner so far is conflicting testimony as to whether that's the case. I'll wait to see what his findings are. But but the 
onus of proof is on government to demonstrate that there were no other authorities available that would have enabled them to to manage this crisis. And it was a crisis. There's no question about that. Uh, but the Emergencies Act is designed to be used as a measure of last resort. And it is the, the test is necessity as opposed to convenience. The issue is not whether it was useful to have it invoked, but whether it was essential to have it invoked. One more question for you. The language of the act is precise. Can you think of anywhere in the Emergencies Act language that use of the act is open to interpretation? Any statute is open to interpretation. It, for example, there's a there. It's before the courts today as to whether or not the government uh, was justified in invoking the act, and the commissioner is looking at that as well. But what we attempted to do in drafting the act was to constrain the circumstances as much as possible to make it clear that that there had to be a genuine emergency for the government to act, and to try to to ensure that that it wouldn't be loosely used. Um, as a result, then, we were quite careful in using the language in the CSIS Act, which had been carefully debated in Parliament and which was designed to ensure that that civil liberties were protected. Um, that's why we wrote it the way that, that we did. And the uh, commissioner will be looking at whether or not uh, when the government says that it had a broader interpretation than that, than the interpretation that is that is made in the uh, in the uh, act itself by referring to the CSIS Act, uh, the commissioner will look at whether it was justified in doing that. The government has indicated that it had a uh, legal opinion on the subject. I hope it will table that, that legal opinion before the commission and make it public. Uh, it, surely Canadians have a right to know the basis on which the government decided that it was legal to, to invoke the act. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.